Profit Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Well, hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. The Profile is brought to you in association with the magazine that I help edit. It's Premier Christianity. And if you would like a free sample copy of the latest issue, which includes articles, features, news, reviews and more, why not head to our website, premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Put your details in and we would be delighted to send you a free copy of the latest issue. But today on the profile, I'm speaking to Chick Yule. Chick is a speaker and writer and author of the new novel, Rooks at Dusk. It's published by Instant Apostle and it's out now. Chick, welcome to the program. Good to be here. Thank you. So I imagine the very first question you probably get asked in an interview format like this, I'm going to take a wild guess here, might be along the lines of where does the name Chick come from? Exactly. It's always the first question. (laughs) Well, I grew up in the west of Scotland, working class Scotland. My dad was a coal miner. And in that part of Scotland, if your name is Charles, they always call you Chick. Uh, the interesting thing was we lived and ministered in the States for five years, and there I, could, I always knew when I was meeting somebody for the first time who knew my name but had never seen me, they always thought I was going to be Chinese. <laughs> they, they always assumed the name Chick Yo was Chinese. But yeah, it's just it's a very Scottish thing. It does so, have a kind of Chinese ring to it, actually, doesn't it? Does, it does, doesn't it? That's yeah. really funny. So tell me more about life growing up in, in Scotland. Did you come from a Christian background? Yes, indeed I did. I'm, my background is in the Salvation Army. I'm a typical example, really, of the elevate their effect like of things like the Salvation Army and early day Methodism. My granny was an alcoholic. My dad uh, gets saved, gets his life turned around. I'm, I get to go to university. My daughter goes to Oxford University. You know, it's that kind of thing right, where yeah. God intervenes in a family and makes a difference for generations. So I grew up with, with great Christian parents, really uh, good, committed, solid people. Mm. That's my background. It sounds like an amazing testimony from, from your parents. Tell me more about about their story and how they encountered Christianity? Well, my dad encountered the gospel uh, through the Salvation Army in our town. Um, That whole sort of impact of of the Salvation Army in those days, the brass band, the on the streets with open air witness, it just impacted young guys like my dad. Um, and that was that was the thing that turned his life around. Wow. So so when did you um, first feel called to go into ministry yourself? Well, Growing up in a, in, in a family where faith is kind of taken for granted, you can just drift along. And I reached a stage in life, I think it was Mark Twain who said, when I was 14, my father was a fool. When I got to 21, I was amazed how much he'd learned in seven years. <laughs> um, and I reached that stage in teenage years where I thought I was really clever. And a mate of mine had read Screwtape Christianity, uh, Screwtape Letters, sorry, uh, by C.S. Lewis. He said to me, you ought to read this, it's really good, and it was. And it it wasn't so much the book itself, but the fact that, you know, here was a guy with an intellect that would blow mine out Mm. of the water. I'm ten times cleverer than I would probably ever be, but who found Christianity deeply, profoundly meaningful and satisfying. And that was my kind of um, uh, adult conversion, um, and from then on, it was a kind of process. 
um, of sensing that God wanted me to be. I mean, I think all Christians are in ministry, but in terms mm. of church leadership, and again, because the Salvation Army was our church, the denomination in which I grew up, mm. I, my wife and I uh, became Salvation Army officers, and in fact did that for 35 years. Wow. A screw Tape Letters is perhaps a, an unusual book to sort of spark that interest, because for those who haven't read it, it's basically uh, letters back and forth between, between demons, demons, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what was it about two demons writing to each other that that made you kind of rethink your Christian faith? Well, it was two things. I mean, I've always loved words, and it was the fact that this was so well written. It really still stands the test of time. It's superbly well written. Um, But also the kind of uh, stuff that he touched upon in this guise of letters between two demons, Mm. it was really the stuff of life that even as a 14, 15-year-old, I recognised it was that kind of reality. One of C.S. Lewis's things was that he he wrote that kind of fiction. His little phrase was, because I want to steal past watchful dragons, the kind of pious religious stuff that almost stops people getting to the truth. And it was that kind of element that it was... It, it suddenly took you into truth from a different route. All right. So you, you went through school and you read that. Uh, what came next? I went to university. I did English at university again because that was, that was the thing I've always been able to do. Uh, then uh, I got married while I was still at university. Um, and Margaret, my wife and I, uh, have now been married 49 years. Um, wow, congratulations. We, yeah, we, we went to the Salvation Army's college together and, as I say, spent the subsequent 35 years in, in ministry there. Wow. So for those who aren't so familiar with the Salvation Army, I guess a lot of people think well, it's just kind of another denomination, but mm-hmm. I think they, uh, they have a brass band and they wear interesting uniforms. What are some of the distinctives, if that's all someone knows about the Salvation Army? Because, as you say, you spent a long time in that particular group. Yeah, I think the distinctives... One of the things that William Booth said, who founded the Salvation Army, was don't tell a man that God loves him if his belly's empty Hmm. or he's got toothache. Hmm. Feed him, cure his toothache, and then tell him that God loves him and he might believe you. And it is the Salvation Army at its best has always combined that evangelistic fervour with a passion for social justice and social service. And no, I wouldn't suggest that that is exclusive to the Salvation Army. I think wherever the church is alive... Hmm. uh, that that you know that that's that's part of the DNA, but it certainly is something that is is enshrined in the Salvation mm. Army. That and a sense of again at its best uh, translating the gospel into whatever language works. You know, brass bands back in Victorian times were the language of the day. It was the church of the music hall. So that's the kind of DNA of the thing. Wow. And 35 years within that within yeah. that group. Where did that take you? Did that take you all over the country, all over uh, the world? It t- took us all over the country. I spent, We spent five years in... Uh, suffering for Jesus in Pasadena in California, <laughs> um, where the sun shines a minimum of 250 days a year. It doesn't sound like suffering to me. Uh, it was tough, I tell you. No, it, was, <laughs> it was a wonderful opportunity. And also loads of speaking opportunities on, on all five continents. So it was a great time. I stepped out of that 10 years ago. Um, but it was it was a great place to be, and my roots are still there. Wow. And I have many, many great friends still there. Yeah. So having had so many decades in, in ministry... Don't look, make me sound I was going to say, I'm sorry on. if that makes you sound older than you want to be known as, but you know, you've ministered and you've yeah. uh, shared the gospel period for a long time. What's been the best day and what's been the worst day of doing that kind of work? Oh, there, there have been so many good days. I, one of my problems in life is that I'm a very up kind of person. 
Um, I actually find that I get annoyed sometimes. I get frustrated. I find it difficult to have a really bad day. Um, I've had some really bad days watching Scotland play football. <laughs> uh, that's made me quite sad. Um, I guess, you know, even the saddest day. You know, I remember when, when my parents died. Those were mm. sad days. And yet, on days like that, the gospel comes alive. And there is a, a power in a, in, in, in a, a faith that tells you, you know, this is just a curtain raiser. The best is yet to be. Yeah. It would be, it would be hard to think of any really bad days. Some tough times, but... Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the it's the gospel that's got you through those tough days. It's yeah. had a real effect on your life. Yeah. Because I think sometimes perhaps people who aren't Christians, they might just think, well, Christianity, that's fine. That's just a kind of belief. But you're saying more than that. You're saying it's not just a belief. It's something that affects your life. So on a bad day, actually, it makes all the difference. Yeah. It's, it's a dynamic as well as a belief. It is a, it is a power that's there. Because we're really talking about the ministry and the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, aren't we? Um, but yeah, there's a dynamic there and, and something that gives a meaning to life and, and a sense of if the gospel is the gospel, there is no such thing as an utterly hopeless situation. Mm. There is no such thing as a person beyond redemption. There is no such thing as a day that is just total despair. Mm, absolutely. So you mentioned that uh, it was 35 years in the Salvation mm-hmm. Army and you've since transitioned out of that and you're now doing um, still ministry, uh, mm, writing job. books and speaking. But why was it that you left the Salvation Army after such a long time? <laughs> Well, there, there was a couple of issues. Um, there, was, there was an issue of, of a style of leadership, which I uh, found somewhat difficult, and I'll spare you the details of that. There was also the fact that um, something that became very important for me. In, when William Booth started the Salvation Army, he was not starting a church. He was starting an evangelistic organisation, mm. movement. By default, the Salvation Army became a church in any sense of the word. Um, But because of where he started from, uh, Booth put the sacraments of communion and baptism on one side. His thing was, I'm putting these on one side until some future day when we have clearer light. Um, And the Salvation Army held to that position, always with a sense of humility, always saying to Salvation Army folk, you are free to receive communion or be baptised if you want, but we as a movement don't do it. Um, I guess just over 10 years ago, in certain areas, that position got a little bit hardened and I could not live with that because I felt it was actually a time for us to make a change there. Mm-hmm. Um, that what we were fighting was a 19th century battle. Because, um, you know, again, people would say, well, you know, being baptised or receiving communion doesn't make you a Christian. Well, of course it doesn't. I don't know anybody who does mm. believe that. Not even, I, I know a lot of good Catholic friends and even they don't say that. Mm. So I, I just felt that was somewhere where we needed to change. I guess I was part of the leadership of a kind of unofficial mm. thrust for that. Yeah. Um, and I had to step out. Sure. But I want to say that I went with no ill will with total respect with great respect mm. for so many of my friends who still minister yeah. there. I guess for a lot of um, those who would call themselves evangelicals those two issues in particular communion and baptism I guess especially baptism are seen as quite important mm. so people would point to scriptures about repent and be baptised so, mm. so for you was there a kind of feeling that actually um, although you might want to agree to disagree on baptism it is something that if you're going to be a kind of church or a denomination yeah. the Salvation Army it's something they should consider doing was that yes. the sort of thinking? Very much that and the sense that I was actually uh, I, I lectured at one of the Salvation Army's college on our position on the sacraments 
And I got, if I may say, my, say it myself, I got quite good at it. The only problem was the better I got at explaining it, the less I was saying to myself, I don't believe this any right. longer. Um, and I think for a, a simple, and I use the word simple in the best sense, for a simple new believer, it's there in Scripture, mm. this do in remembrance of me, and be baptized in the name of the Father. So, yeah, it just did, you know, mm. I can explain that those yeah. things are symbolic, that, yeah. but I just felt it was increasingly yeah. important yeah. and still feel that. It must have been quite painful, though, to, to leave um, yes. an organization after so long. Was, was that hard? It was very painful. Yeah, and Salvation Army people have a particular kind of loyalty. Um, when you create the uh, metaphor of an army, you can then create the sort of sense that to step out of it is almost a kind of desertion. So it was, yeah, it was, it was a very difficult time. Um, and if you want a dark day, that was probably it. And yet I went with a sense of, this is what I know I have to do and I will go with no ill will and I will go with no bad feeling against anybody and no resentment and no bitterness. Mm. And the interesting thing is that since then I've done a lot of work for the Salvation Army, both in this country, in Australia, in in the continent of Europe, in America. So, wow. I, yeah. So God has uh, led you into other things since. Yeah. And, uh, I imagine at the point of leaving, you didn't know what would be next for you because this, was, this wasn't this was just a church you yeah. belonged to. This was your livelihood, presumably, as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. I didn't know what I was going to do. I mean, I've always been, whatever modicum of gifting I have, yeah, I'm a speaker, I'm a preacher, I'm a teacher. Uh, but I had no idea what I was going to do. Mm. I had no job lined up. Um, and I made a little vote that I would not go hunting for anything, but I would be open to whatever Mm -hmm. came to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, So for three and a half years, I worked with LICC, London Institute for Contemporary Christianity, on their whole life disciple-making project, headed that up in the Northwest. I stepped out of that only when I had a cancer diagnosis and I knew I was going to have to go through treatment and wasn't sure how I would respond to that. Um, but yeah, God has opened up. Yeah. He's been speaking opportunities, all sorts of great yeah. stuff. Yeah. What happened with the with the cancer diagnosis? Did you do you have to go through treatment and? Yeah, and I'm here to tell the tale. I know. Yeah. So this was some time ago. This was yeah, this ago, is for, four years ago. Wow. Yeah. Um, and it was, if I hadn't found it, I mean, a word to all men out there: go and get your PSA checked because <laughs> it's really important. Because um, I had no symptoms. But Margaret, my wife, had said to me, you really ought to get it checked. And yeah. they noticed that it had risen above where it should. Um, so I went through um, radiotherapy, hormone treatment, wonderful treatment. And I mean, I'm a great believer that one of the, one of the glories of this country that we live in is our National Health Service. Mm. Um, so I had great treatment. I'm very well. I'm fit and healthy. Uh, I've reached the age of 70. I run regularly. I do some weights. I do Pilates. I ride an exercise bike. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm very well, and God's been really good. And uh, so I, I thank God for my wife who nagged me, for all the people who prayed for me, and for the National Health Service yeah. that treated me. Well, um, it has been commented on, actually, in, in Christian circles before, that uh, there is arguably a bit of an unhealthy attitude in a lot of churches towards health so every men's breakfast is a fry up and there's always biscuits yeah. after church and yeah. is health something that, that the church has kind of overlooked in some way and we talked a lot about healing but haven't spoken so much about taking care of ourselves yeah some years ago <laughs> i was speaking at a conference on the other side of the atlantic i'm um, and somebody gave a talk on the gay issue and it was 
It was pretty angry stuff. Um, and I was uncomfortable with it. So when I got up to speak, I did say to people, you know what, I don't think we as the Christian community have any right to address the gay community at this moment. I look around this room and I see that many of us don't even have the self-discipline to pass a cookie jar. <laughs> so I, you know, it wasn't appreciated by everybody, but I think scripture says a whole lot about gluttony and greed and the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. I think it is, it is a dereliction of our Christian duty not to look after your body. And I don't mean to become faddish, and we're not all the same size, and we're not all going to be super slim, and we're not all athletes, but we should look after our body. Wow, strong words. I yep. bet that's uh, got a mixed reaction. <laughs> that particular conference has never invited me back again. <laughs> I wanted to ask you a bit more about conference speaking. Yeah. Um, when you get up in front of, could be thousands of people at something like Spring Harvest, do you ever get nervous? It depends how you're wired up. For me, speaking to somebody one-on-one is more nerve-wracking than speaking to 5,000. Because I can talk back to you, whereas the 5,000 people at Spring Harvest can't, maybe. Yeah, and, and <laughs> also, by nature, I'm, I'm really quite shy. I've learned to disguise it over the years. But if you're wired up to be that kind of person, it is. I think the, the adrenaline rush you get when you talk to a crowd in something like the Big Top at Spring Harvest, must be like people get when they climb mountains or yeah. uh, whatever. It's it's just a, a thr- thrilling, humbling but thrilling experience. I you know I some people say oh, I wish I didn't have to do it. I love doing it. Yeah. I'm always grateful for the opportunity, and I need to be honest about that. Sure. So alongside the the speaking work you've been doing, I wanted to talk about the new book, uh, which has just come out very recently. <laughs> And it's a novel. I know you've written books in the past that have been non-fiction, but I think this is your first time actually writing a novel. So why a novel and why now? Why a novel? Because I think you can get to a level of truth in fiction that is hard to get to anywhere else. You can mine truth. And, and if you have a gift in writing, and I think I've got a little bit of a gift. I don't overestimate myself, but I think we need to acknowledge the gifts we do have. I think you can get to a level of truth. And why now? Because over years I've said, I've really got to do this. And when I got to my late 60s and I'm thinking, I, as far as I can tell, my brain is still working. And I had a real sense, I want to use the next 10 years well. I don't want to get to the age of 80 and think, you know what, I wish I'd tried that. So I sat myself down and I made myself do it and it was a most interesting experience. If people find it half as interesting reading it as I found writing it, <laughs> we'll sell a lot of books. <laughs> I, I, what, what about the, that idea of it being interesting? I've heard other uh, novelists talk before about sometimes when you sit down to write, you don't actually know even what the ending of the novel could be. Was yeah. that what made it interesting for you or was it something else? Yes, it is. I mean, I, I had a, a broad idea of the outline of the book, though I had no idea where it was going to end. Now, the stuff I've written before, whilst it does evolve as you write, it's pretty well you know what you're going to write. But it's fascinating because people turn up. Some of them turn up in the middle of the night and you have to get up and write the names down. But there's one particular chapter in the book where there's a lady called Laura Sheldrick. I'm... And it was only as I'm writing a chapter and she answers the door that I think, this lady is mixed race and there's a story to this and it's such a useful story for this book. Now, I know that I'm making it up Mm. on one level, but on another level, it seems to be coming 
from somewhere deep in your gut and your subconscious. It's a fascinating experience. Wow, so interesting. And who did you have in mind? Because although some people might take a look at this and say, oh, well, I know who Chick is, and so yeah. it's obviously Christian fiction. Mm. I imagine on one level you wouldn't want to identify it specifically as Christian fiction because I know you're speaking before off-air yeah. about um, people who aren't Christians actually yeah. finding, uh, finding this book interesting. So tell me a bit more about that. Sam, you're absolutely right. I don't like calling it Christian fiction. I hope it's a good book and a good read written from a Christian perspective. That's the thing. The idea for the book, the, the title Rooks at Dusk, I don't know whether you know the name of Dennis Potter. Dennis Potter is one of the great television playwrights. I died some years ago. Potter struggled with faith, struggled, longed to believe but couldn't. And back in the 1970s, he was asked uh, unusually to do a religious broadcast at Christmas time. I think it was by Radio 3. And he spoke about the fact that he had a longing for God and for Jesus, but that the words uh, God and Jesus stuck in his gut and there was a cynicism that rose up and he used the phrase like the cawing of rooks at dusk. I sometimes get irritated. I'm humbly proud to call myself an evangelical Christian, Mm -hmm. but I sometimes get a little irritated that I think we're sometimes very glib. Mm -hmm. You know, come to Jesus and everything's easy and Mm -hmm. it's good. Come to Jesus and things are difficult. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's really hard to believe. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's hard to hang on to believe. You know, Christians sometimes mess up. And I, I wanted to explore what would it be like If you did something bad, but you could never put it right again, how does the grace of God operate then? You know, to use a a crude example, if I uh, drunk a bottle of whiskey and got in my car and I killed a child, God would forgive me. The the child's parents may even forgive me. Can never put that right. How does grace reach you there? Now, that's not the book is not about that kind of incident, but it is about uh, an itinerant speaker who loses faith. And as a moral crash, he gets himself involved in an affair. Um, his son is a stand-up comic who rejected his faith in his teenage years. I just think preachers and stand-up comics are interesting because mm. they are the only people in our culture now who stand up and speak for any length of time yeah, to an true. audience. Yeah, um, and I wanted to play that. And I wanted to, to, you know, how do you get reconciled again? Mm. How do you find grace? And I wanted to do it in such a way that, not only committed Christians, but people who have no specific belief could read it, could discern some of the truth, but were free at the end to make up their mind. Mm. You know, it's interesting that it's only Christians who've said to me, and I take it as a compliment in one way, please, will you write a sequel? And I say, no way. Because <laughs> what you want me to do is solve it all in the end. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. The book ends with yeah. a question. Yeah. Where does Ray, the, the main character in the book, where does he go and what does he do? Mm. That's so interesting that it ends with a question and it doesn't uh, wrap everything up neatly. Because again, you could argue, I think both of us have probably read other books, we won't name them, but no. would come into the category of Christian fiction where it's perhaps less about a story and more about just getting to the end so I can tell you that Jesus solves all your problems. Yeah, yeah. 
So you're clearly going against that in some way. Yeah. And, and I, I guess the question here is, is that because society has changed? Is that because actually for the average person who isn't a Christian, they don't want to feel like they're being preached at through a novel? Maybe maybe Christians could have got away with that in, the, yeah. in generations past, but they can't anymore. So is there been a cultural shift here that Christians need to catch up with? Yes, there is. There's also a thing about the, the nature of a novel that to write that kind of contrived ending is an abuse of the novel. Don't write a novel, write an evangelistic tract. Mm. I'm not against, there's a good, there's a place for evangelistic tracts and evangelistic books, but that is not what a novel does. And yes, I think also the other thing that Christians are not always alive to, you know, we lament the fact that this is a culture that has lost its Christian memory. You know, you watch things like University Challenge, these kids with... uh, a brain like the size of a planet until they're asked a Bible question and they can't <laughs> answer it. But here's the exciting thing. For the first time in literally hundreds of years, we have the opportunity to tell the gospel story to people who do not know it. Now, how do you tell that story? One way is just to tell them straight the story of Jesus. Another is, is to tell the story that everybody is longing for. The story of grace, the story of forgiveness, the story of reconciliation. That's what people are longing for. And I think we've, we've got to wise up to that. That's amazing. So when you're not writing books and uh, speaking, I understand to relax, you, uh, you share a season ticket for Manchester United. Uh, where did the football interest come from? Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm really not sure that relax is the right word, especially after the couple of seasons we've been through where watching there was absolute agony. It's been a little more relaxing this season. Yeah, I do love football. It's part of, you know, I grew up loving football. Um, I grew up being the kid who never quite made it into the school team. Oh, um, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's a cause for some sadness. <laughs> but I've just, I, I love football. I love it with a passion. I I, I, I love big crowds as well. You asked me about speaking to a big crowd. I love being in a big crowd. 76,000 people at Old Trafford is such a buzz. I love that. I mean, some people hate crowds. I love them. And I love being part of something where everybody sings. Yeah. Well, yeah, that church is quite good yeah, at that. I was well. going to say yeah. again, the only you mentioned the combination or the, the, the similarity between stand up comics and preachers. And the other thing that people often say is the only place where people come together and sing in large numbers, often, I mean, other than concerts, is often a football match or in church. Yeah. Isn't it? Yes, it is. Chick, thank you so much for coming in. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure for me. Thank you. That brings us to the end of part one of the profile today. But join us again after the break because we'll be hearing from the gospel superstar, Sinatch. Whatever happened to the promised revival? In the latest Premier Christianity magazine, New Frontiers leader Terry Virgo asks whether it's time to reignite revival hopes as he looks at moves of God, past, present and future. Plus, from Justin Welby to the HDB effect, we examine how evangelicals took over the Church of England. Find out why adoption turned Krish Kandaya's life and theology upside down and meet Christina Dean, pioneering fashion designer who scours rubbish tips to create ethical clothing. All that plus much more. Ask for your free sample copy at premierchristianity.com slash free sample. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio.
Welcome back to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. This programme is brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine. For a free sample copy of the latest issue, just head to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. But now on The Profile, it's time to listen in to Damio's interview with the gospel superstar Sinach. So my guest in the studio has been named one of the top 100 influential Christians in Nigeria. She is an award-winning international gospel music singer-songwriter and senior worship leader known globally for several hits, including Waymaker and I Know Who I Am. Welcome to The Profile, Sinatch. Thank you, dummy. Thank you so much for joining me. (laughs) Thank you. So did you always think one day I'll be an international worship leader? Um, from the beginning, I didn't think like that. I was, um, I was content in serving in the church. And I was just happy to be given an opportunity to write and to share my music with the church. And it was the most exciting thing to do. Yeah. And so, you know, like the Bible says, when you bear fruits, he prunes and you bear more. And imagine how that has been. So that's what he has been for me. So he has been able to do exceeding abundantly more than I could ever think or even imagine. So you're content with being uh, where you were in the choir Mm -hmm. at church and you were content, you were Mm -hmm. comfortable with Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. You weren't looking at the worship leader like, oh, I can't wait. Worship leader. Yes, I was a worship leader. So you were already the worship leader. Oh, yes, I was already a worship leader. And um, I was content because I had a platform to share my music. Okay. So um, when you're content with where God has placed you, he gives you more. That's what happens. At the point where it started to grow, how did you feel? Were you anxious or did you think this is what God wants me to do I've, I've never been anxious because each time it grows like look look i'm here right now and uh, i just did something with bbc yesterday and today and uh, for every point it is exciting it's exciting i've never been anxious because i have learned to trust god not to move ahead of him because when you move ahead of him you're going to get into trouble but then i will trust him to make to provide the opportunity and of course I will make the move and so that's what he has been for me exciting not anxious at all so the the period of being anxious has been periods of training for me and I have learned not to be anxious because I realize that his plan for me is better than the one I have for myself so I choose not to be anxious because I know his plans are better for me Amen. Mm-hmm. Uh, now let's talk about life for Sinatch growing up. Tell us a little bit about your childhood. I'm a second daughter to seven children. We wow. have four boys and three girls, of course, second daughter. So I grew up in a very closely knitted family. Um, mom, dad. Dad was an economist. He worked with the government, permanent secretary with the government. Mom was a, mom was a teacher you know, and um, she's retired now, but dad has passed on. And then, uh, of course, my sister. So the house was an exciting place to be. With and seven children. Yes, so it was all fun. So we learned to uh, play with one another, love one another. And my parents, of course, were Christians. My father was a praying man and instilled upon us that uh, presence, God consciousness in our family. And that's how I grew up. 
So when did your faith become a personal journey for you? A personal journey was uh, when I was 16, yeah, first year in school. So I saw my friends going to church, and then uh, they were looking so nice, so I joined the bus. And then when I got to church, the pastor preached a simple message. Meanwhile, the music was so beautiful that I couldn't resist. I was like, oh, my goodness, how is it to do this kind of music here? And they don't get to do it where I was going to church. And so that was the first thing that got my attention. And so that's why I take music very personal. I'm very conscious of music because it has a, 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 an attraction to young people. So I went to church, and here it was. The pastor was preaching and talking about the Holy Spirit, talking about salvation. Not only did I get born again, I got filled with the Holy Spirit same day. Wow. And so from then he has been from glory to glory, you know. So uh, let's talk about your journey into music then. Did mm. that sort of happen at the same time with your journey into faith? Uh, journey into music. Oh, um, I was actually, I was already singing before I got born again. But mm. then when I got born again, um, a different kind of music was I was exposed to it, that's gospel music. And then when I met my pastor, Pastor Chris, it became ministry. He started mentoring me. I say, the ministry of music versus the um, what you could the hobby of music. Mm. So ministry became the primary thing for me at that point. So that's how it was. So when you say you were involved, interested in music, what kind of music were you interested in? At my young it age, gospel music. Oh yeah, yeah sort of all sorts of music, of course. MJ, Anita Baker. Uh, what were uh, Whitney Houston? Of course, the whole thing that your parents play at home, and of course Nigerian music or Sade Bay. Then uh, <clears throat> who who was it? It was um, the Kenny Rogers and all those country music and all that. So he would play it every morning when he we wake up. He being your dad. Yes, of course he would play it, and we all listen. And so that kind of grew, and he had this library of books, so that helped me a lot too. Because I could get a place to read. So I developed the love for books. I developed the love for music. Mm. So so then you finally give your life to Christ. Oh, yes. Um, drawn in by this beautiful music oh, yes. that you heard at the And service. I joined the choir. Immediately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I joined the choir. That was my place of expression. Mm. So I joined the choir and I started serving in the choir. And I'm still serving in the choir all the time Absolutely. whenever I get the opportunity. Wonderful. Yes. So uh, why do you think music is such a powerful tool for praise and worship? I think people generally lean towards music. Everywhere you go, every country that I've been to, people um, uh, connect with music, even if they don't understand the language. So if, if you're there talking and somebody else is there singing, they will listen to music. It connects so quickly to the spirit. It is amazing. It's something that I've seen happen so quickly. And it, it travels fast. So it, it's a tool. It's a tool for evangelism. It's a tool for inspiration. It's a tool for faith, you know, inspiring faith, inspiring love. And um, I know that I've gotten letters several times. I can talk about it because it's a Christian network. You know, um, I know I've gotten letters of people who say, I was depressed. But as I started listening to your music, the depression lifted. There was one woman, um, I was, I think it was Amsterdam. He, she said to me, I lost my daughter for no, suddenly my daughter died. 
And I was depressed. I couldn't, I couldn't just get out of depression. That's what she told me. She said she couldn't get out of depression. She was depressed for so long. She couldn't get out of the bed. She said, my husband got my, your music and started playing it for me. Every day it went on turn. Tony said, he played for two weeks. I started singing. And then she said, I got out from the bed. Before long, that heavy cloud that was hanging upon me, it just lifted. And people, I've heard testimony of people who were suicidal, and they kept listening to the music, and then their spirit lifted. There's something about music. The Bible talks about when the, the, the priests, the sang, they said the glory of God was so strong that even the, <laughs> the priests couldn't minister. And then one time they talked about David. He came to play for Saul. King Saul. And then he said the evil spirit left him because of the music. So anointed music has its own place in the house of God. The music that is inspirational with good news, gospel, it has its own place in the world. We need to have more inspirational music that can inspire people to godliness. Wow. So who inspires you? What music has inspires that same impact on Every you? gospel music. I listen to a wide variety of people. Today, this other person, I listen to a lot of young people as well. But um, um, there are a lot of young people that are doing gospel music. It's very inspirational. You know, and I come from a ministry that we have good musicians, so we have a wide range. Stand amazed in your presence There is nothing you cannot do I stand amazed in your presence There is joy, peace and hope There's no one like you
I read somewhere, and you have to tell me if it's true or not, that you've written over 500 songs. Yeah, almost a thousand, yeah, or even wow. more. But, they, you know, like, I write all the time. Like, yesterday I wrote one. And they just come? They come. It's a gift. It's a gift, so I can take credit for it. It's something that God has put in me. So I write as oh. equation serves. And what inspires you to write? It could be that I've just finished talking with you and then a song, something, a phrase or something comes to me. I might not finish writing today, but I can finish writing it tomorrow. So um, it depends on what is happening. Okay. So and what, what is in me. Most of the time is when I spend some time with the presence, with the Lord, I, I write. I write. At most times when I'm listening to the word, I write. Mm. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Just like the psalmist. Yes. You could say that. <laughs> so you spend a lot of time encouraging other people, you know, leading them into worship. But what motivates you? What keeps you motivated? The Word of God. Because nothing motivates like the Word of God. In the Word of God is everything you require for life and godliness. And so that has been my strength. That is my inspiration. And the Holy Spirit is it. So once you have the Holy Spirit in you, it, there's, there's a wealth of inspiration. You know, um, God is the creator of all things. And because we know him, he's inside of us. The Bible says, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And it talks about he, we have an unction from the Holy One, and we know all things. And so there's a wealth, of, uh, a wealth that is within us. And so if you look in words, if you look in words, the Holy Spirit is always inspiring, and there's a wealth within us that we can tap. Do you think that we do have a responsibility, though? For example, you're, you have a gifting of songwriting, but you have to put pen to paper. Mm-hmm. You can't just... You can't just sit down and expect the gift to work for you. You have to work the gift for it to work. Let me tell you what I, I mean. I've seen many talented people. They have good gifts, but they're not willing to work on it. There must be... Uh, 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 working it is like um, the Bible talks about making proof of your ministry. Mm-hmm. If you have to, if you are called to be a teacher, then you have to prove that you have been called to be a teacher. Or you, it's the same thing with musicians. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of musicians; they have the gift, but they're not able to apply themselves. Maybe they're lazy. Maybe they can. They prefer the designer shoe to go into the studio to work. Mm-hmm. I always tell people that I mentor. I tell them that. When you are young, is not when to buy designer's wristwatch with your money. You, you, why, why can't you use that money to invest in your personality? If you invest in yourself, you will so shine, like the Bible says, the king shall come to the brightness of your rising. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. If you invest in your personality, the world will watch you and people will want to connect with you. And that's how wealth comes. You create wealth that way. But if you, when you're young, you squander all the, all the opportunities that God's given you by buying all the nice gold wristwatches and all that, and all you do is to wear them, but your head is empty. Your mind is empty. You're not improving in your mind. You're not getting some, some lessons. You're not getting some, uh, what do you call it? You're not getting any training. You find out by the time you're 40, you're broke because you never invested in your future. So when you're young, you invest in your future to create wealth for your future. And that's what it is. So for people who have gift and think suddenly somebody is going to take you up and nobody, like my mentor always told me, he said, nobody can believe in the gift that you have than you. Mm. 
more than you. Because you have to believe in what God has given you. And if you believe in what God has given you, you invest in it. And if you cannot invest in your gift, nobody else can invest in it. Because you don't even believe your gift. So how is somebody else going to believe it? And that takes me on to my question that, is mm-hmm. talent enough is not. to be a worship leader? Is not. Is not. Mm. Worship leading is a calling. Um, I've heard people who are so gifted, but they cannot lead anybody to worship. Is mm. I've heard people who have broken voices, but when they open their mouth, the anointing takes over. And especially... You know, so it's it's a calling. It's a calling. If you don't have it, you don't have it. That's it. So what advice would you give to worship leaders about leading worship in the church? Be humble. Be faithful. Because you never know where God is taking you. Be faithful because you might be leading worship in your church. It might be a time of preparation. For some people, their calling is just that church. And you must be content with that. But some people, he will take you to another phase, to another phase where he puts you on a platform, a global platform to lead worship. And that is great. But the most important thing is to run with God's vision for your life, not anybody's vision. Do you understand what I mean? So, uh, so that's what I tell gospel uh, worship leaders. Sometimes they come up to me and I say, I want to be like you. I want to be like you traveling all over the world. I say, no. Find out what God has for you. Because if you try to step in into a place where you're not supposed to, the anointing will not work for you. It's easy for me because I'm graced for that. There's a grace. There's a favor. And there's a calling towards it. And that makes it smooth. It's that little oil that works everything out. And how did you discover this vision for your life? Oh, well, I, it's just like a child when he first started. My man of God was the one that told me that, oh, you have it. I was like, mm, really? You know, so it was like guided, guided, guided. And of course, you grow older and you're expected to hear from God by yourself. You're expected to uh, uh, see what God has in your heart for you. And so that's how it started for me. I didn't even know. He was the one that pointed it out for me. And what was that moment of stepping out? Do you remember your first sort of moment of stepping out? It was, it was, um, but you need, what the Spirit of God told me is that boldness and courage, because life is a, a wheel of opportunity. Sometimes if you let it go, it might take a longer time to come back again. Mm. And so that's what it is. You must know. That's where prayer, listening to the Holy Spirit comes in, because sometimes everybody might not agree with you, but once you heard from the Holy Spirit and you're convinced in your heart, then it makes it beautiful. So I'm sure there's a lot of people listening. Many people are gifted with talent of singing, dancing, whatever it may be. How do you avoid self-glorification? How do you avoid making it about yourself and showing off your talent and making sure it's worship to God? Yep, there's a thin line between that. You know, uh, when you learn to serve, then it keeps you balanced. You know, I serve in my local church. So it gives me a sort of balance, a sort of balance. And then realizing that it's not about you, that if God <clears throat> did not give you this, excuse me, if God didn't give you this, then it wouldn't work. It's a grace. I always tell people, I try to tell him, it's a grace. I'm not the best singer in the world, and, but look at me. So that really humbles me. For me, that's my, 
uh, that's my cure for, you know, big-headedness. That's the cure for it. Okay, like people we say in Africa, you, I don't get big-headed. That's the cure for it, you know, and all that. And so, um, yeah, I would tell them to serve. Always have a place you're serving all the time. Okay, so I'm going to talk about something that will probably put a smile on your face. Okay. So you've been married for a few years now. Is mm-hmm. it three years? Yeah, three years. Three years. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, what have you learned about married life so far? I heard, I learned that marriage is a partnership. But of course, my husband is the head. It is a support system. It is uh, two is better than one. Uh, when I got married, I saw a lot of leap in my life in different places increase in my life that means you have someone that can think with you pray with you support you can support one another and that's a beautiful thing that is so beautiful so it was a good thing and it is a good thing. i'm sure you discovered some challenges as well or some things oh, that challenged you yeah yeah because you you are here if you marry a good man or a good woman the person will hold you to a higher standard of uh, accountability so it's like uh, the person is challenging you. Oh, you know, this is too small. You can't do this. And that is good. That is very good. That is really very good. That is very good. And I know a lot of people have been following your journey because you've been a worship leader for years. Yes. Um, and only recently just married. So for those listening and, and those watching, how how... What was it like for you waiting for Mr. Right? Was it a challenging time? Did you know that God was going to do it? Uh, to tell you the truth, I wasn't actually waiting because I thought to myself, if this, if I'm going to be single, that is okay. I was, I was really, to tell you the truth, I was really, really happy about it. And so you must come to the place where you are content beyond married, and then you can find a man that has the same purpose. But if you are not content being married, it is unlikely that you'll be content being married because your, con- uh, your, your contentment doesn't come from being married or not being married. Your fulfillment comes from the vision, fulfilling God's vision for your life. And that's what happened to me. So your advice to those who are not married. Are not married. Some will never marry, no matter how much they try. And some will marry, even if they don't want to marry. The key is to be content with where God has placed you. Because your happiness is not coming from your husband. Your happiness is not coming from anywhere else. But your joy, happiness, and fulfillment will come from the calling that God has upon your life. Fulfilling it. That is an eternal, uh, the, the secret of happiness. Pursuing the things that God has placed in your heart. And finding a partner that can help you and join you in, uh, in, in um, uh, collaboration to uh, fulfill the vision of God in your life. And I guess some people are called to marriage in the sense that that partnership is part of them fulfilling. Yeah, that's what it is. God will bring you a helper as a man. And then for a woman, God will bring you a head that can help you. That's what it is. So tell us what's coming up for you. What can people expect in the near future? Yay, excited. So this year we've been on a tour, Sinatch Life World Tour. Is a, I had a Waymaker album come out last year, so we promoted it, and we went on uh, a tour. We've done 15, uh, 15 countries, 18 cities, so we've been everywhere apart from Asia. Of course, next year we'll be Asia. So um, this November, we're doing London on the 24th, 
We're doing Birmingham on the 28th and Glasgow on the 29th. And so it's going to be beautiful. And just very uh, briefly, what, what has the experience been like on tour? What, on what tour. is the highlight? What, con- what country took you by surprise? Or? I think that this has been the best uh, tour that I've ever had. I, I, I don't know how I did it, but we did it. You know, it's the Holy Spirit. I don't know how we did it, but we, we've done it. We, it's been, it's, it's amazing. It's the, it's the most exciting and adventurous thing I've ever done, you know. Um, so we go to different countries. The reaction, the connection is the same, but the reaction are different because of culture, of course. Of culture. I can say this is the best place I've been because everyone has a need for God. Everyone has a need for fulfillment. And so you see that. As we begin to sing, your, the faces will light up. And um, um, wow, it's been an experience. You know, from Australia to New Zealand to sh- Seychelles to Guyana to Suriname to uh, uh, Barbados to Antigua to uh, Grenada to different parts in Nigeria, South Africa to Brazil. I mean, it is amazing to America, to of course London as well. So it's been it's been amazing. It's been amazing. God is faithful. Wonderful. Thank you so much for Thank joining you. me. Thank you so much, Danny. That brings us to the end of this week's The Profile. Thank you for joining with us here on Premier Christian Radio for my interview with Chick Yul and Damio's interview with Sinatch. If you'd like to hear more interviews with leading Christians, then you can, of course, download The Profile as a podcast. Just head to premierchristianradio.com forward slash The Profile. You can listen online to past shows and also download the podcast. Just a final reminder, you can as well get a free sample copy of Premier Christianity magazine. That's the magazine that I help edit and it's also the magazine that sponsors this show here on Premier Christian Radio. If you'd like to read news, features, interviews with leading Christians, why not request a free sample copy at our website? It's premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. But now coming up next on Premier Christian Radio is Dave Rose with Premier Playback.